0: So cultivation of panyā, discernment, wisdom, clarity, these, these terms and it's uh, uh, various uh, ways this is explained, both the storing up of know-how from reading and studying and reflecting, um, application, knowing what to how to apply oneself. so It's a skill we might you know, say. we have the ideas and then we also have the knowing how to apply which is different from having the ideas (laughs) you don't have an idea and that's it (laughs) flat you know you go well how does this one work and so slowly, quietly softly, sharply, where do you put it like somebody says (coughs) make an omelette or well, cracks of eggs, throw the eggs against the wall? No, a sort of jump up and down on them. No, <laughs> yeah. so the skill of knowing what, how to how to affect these, um, having the right ideas, like loving kindness, and so on, and then how to bring it around. This is a skill. So there's a skill of understanding the skill of know-how so skillful means how does the quality of goodwill arise, for example through seeing that to which one can extend goodwill the sign of the lovable either because it it needs a quality of goodwill, it asks for it. The so love is not always cute, but something one recognises is like you know is needy of that, the dry the hard, the withered the sh- the, the broken heart, and so on. Mm. And also fostering the potential for it by recognizing the value of this experience in one's life when goodwill has been shown to one's self or you see goodwill being shown to others in various ways. Think, That's beautiful. That's truly beautiful. That's courageous. That's wonderful. That required such faith. So then, being thus inspired, one begins to, well yeah, it's like that, isn't it? and the power of that so the idea and the application is that to persist following one's hunches looking out for signs remember doing is guesswork it's not just an instant push a button and everything springs open, it's guesswork feeling around Sampling results, you know. Assessing one's attitudes and intentions. Am I sustaining this or getting frantic? Am I sustaining this or getting rigid? Am I sustaining it in the right way, a careful way? I'm just thinking of a story I read. A woman I met in South Africa a while back, Sister Abigail a very um, lovable person <laughs> in many ways, and she was um, did a lot of work for you know people in desperate needs in South Africa. I mean, one time she somebody brought this baby. They, they found this baby in a, in a trash can somebody dumped it. Um the little baby you know, being dead, useless, and she. And he pulled this baby. And she, goes, I don't know about that. That's really dead. I don't know. Mm. You know. So she just had some feeling. So she just took the baby, strapped it to her chest, wore, wore this baby on her chest. Uh, so day day and night, mm. just using the warmth of her body and the warmth of her intentions, just saturate this being and gradually. The heartbeat, she could detect the heartbeat. The heartbeat coming back. So nobody could have detected it at first, but she felt, she didn't, she had a sense of creepy, the little one is not dead yet. And so she just worked on that, and then gradually the heartbeat returning to the little, little one, the little one coming into life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just a sense of really, you know, just reflect on the image. you know, strapping it, strapping it to one's chest, and so it's kind of a physicality to it. You really take it on. You don't resist it. You don't give up on it. You meet it, Then you don't start batting it around, telling it to shape up, and get better. And you don't give up. And extending the heart, the heart extends very easily through the tissues. And to bear this in mind with one's own, this is a piece I offer for, you know, testing it out. You know why I've taught this so often, a sense of the sympathy between body and mind. Really get it. And if you just, really, you know, it's is, it is surprising. You know, if you can even imagine taking your suffering and sticking it right against your chest. <laughs> your body, you know, oh, I can't do that, yes you can. <laughs> Just because you can't see it as an object with your eyes doesn't mean it's not there. Yeah. And something about that, that, that creates a very, clearly we're working on energetic uh, aspects but can be this transference of something that happens almost by itself, by non-resistance, by deeply embracing, uh, by non-separation from, you know, not partaking of the sign of despair, uh, death—you might say—death of the heart. So, skilful means. And so, this is just a little instance of them. One of them, <clears throat> and um, also wisdom is likened to something that trims, that tears away what is not needed what is directly uh, destructive what is either unnecessary not needed distracting or just the wrong signals So you keep pruning away signals of uh, defeat signals of despair signals of hatred signals carrying qualities that you know and that you really directly know you don't always directly know but what you do directly know is toxic painful unworthy, ignoble degrading you keep pruning it out of way and this may itself not be that easy some of these you know, toxins are kind of reflexive toxins you just keep jump, jumping back in again this is why one does encourage meditation and uh, body work and supportive friendships and so forth to jam the reflexes. So I've got to be somebody, got to get somewhere, got to achieve something, shouldn't feel like this. Keep jamming those those reflexes where the toxins of despair and degradation and sabotage come in. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and how do they come in? because we've been following wrong messages we get indoctrinated into wrong messages it's called education it's really indoctrination whereby one level we think we're learning math and business studies and so on but basically, within that, we're learning conformity, uh, goal orientation, getting a job, making a living, running faster. You know, that, that isn't what they teach you, but <laughs> that's the process, right? So, though, what one's learning may be, you know, physics or biology, yeah, that's, that's the topic, but the process is one of competition, Goal orientation, faster, quicker, get ahead, be the best. This is toxic for the heart. It's good for business. <laughs> but this is why we become a slave population. You know, doing stuff that doesn't really offers us enough. Enough to keep us in the race. That's the, that's the way it works. We get enough material requisites, enough benefits to keep us in the race. And with still the promise that yeah, you could get better. And the various other things that occur around that the divide the rule, and look, you're getting better than those people, so getting ahead of those people. and what does that do? Division lack of inclusion you know this is uh, not for our welfare really dividing people them and us creates fear resentment hostility jealousy and so on crime these are big influences so you you say well Well, where do you start the detox? You're going to go against the messages that have got you, that get us intoxicated. The message of success, the message of competition, the message of being the best, the message of going faster is going to get you better, having more is going to get you better. Keep working against those messages, the message of other people what that can mean. Other people I'm not as good as, or other people I'm better than. And so all this message is going to create division, not good for the heart. And we internalize this. We have all kinds of people we wish we could be as good as, that we imagine we would be if only we were different. And So them and us think it's internalised. There's parts of myself that are indeed, you know, one feels are not lovely, not beautiful, not admirable, not bright, not, you know. So those have to be included rather than just despised or run away from. This is strapping it right to the heart, isn't it? All of it. It's a detox you know so this process of liberation is both um wisdom oriented and energy oriented the energy orientation which i have uh, tried to explain in various ways is more to do with beginning to check even the material world or these apparent physical forms and stuff like that and begin to recognize that even this most obvious and coarse materiality of my body that I can directly witness for myself and feel is actually an energetic system of flows and processes and heats and tightness and looseness that you can you can definitely work on. You can't sprout another leg, but you can you know take the numbness out of the ones you got. <laughs> so you got real legs rather than just ideas of legs uh, and so forth and that these things are not just in inert matter and they're, they're energetic they're sensitive they're responsive parts of your body particularly the upper body all kinds of responsive systems in it if you give it a chance to speak to wake up to and listen to it what's happening here so I won't we'll go through all that again, but um, just reflecting on that, there's an energetic uh, cleansing, energetic processes that we can undertake. And now I remembering the detox is to stop reverting to the views that prevent that happening. And one, the view, so often we, uh, unfortunately without even realising, we adopt a domination view. It's not a kind word to say, but you know, you should check it out. Does your thinking dominate your body? Does it tell it what to do? Does it complain about it? Does it is it sympathetic to it? Does your body, to your mind, your thinking continually nag about your energies? You know, trying to push you around, you know, try to make you be something. Does it Complain about your heart, Mm. you know, say you should be this way or that way. This is is domination, this is tyranny. Mm. And we've kind of internalised that, those qualities. Mm. So we have a slave body, really. And the slave body becomes stupid, stupefied, and probably resentful. we don't know it's happening. We don't know it's happening. But that's, that's the way it works. <laughs> good ignorance. And you know, we're indoctrinated into a good degree of ignorance. We perpetuate it, and live it out. So we get, it gets built up as a way of life, really. The idea that if we dominate things well enough, we'll get to the sweet spot. But we don't get out of the domination experience which itself is not sweet, not loving, not compassionate, not beautiful, not able to include very much at all, not conducive to peace and harmony. Therefore, we must take every attempt to check this one, to be humble, to be contented, easily satisfied, straightforward, gentle in speech. Because this, um, these views, uh, the ideas or the, the thinking mind's views, have been established by a particular social-cultural inclination, not one's own. So we must come back to the, the slave, the body, and ask that to begin to, you know, educate us and listen to that. Because this one is, uh, is not uh, conditioned by these socio-cultural effects and views. It's, it's organic, it's natural, it's conditioned by nature. It certainly gets conditioned by these uh, views. We experience some of the results of that in our body. So very much encouraging trying to return to the natural body, and even what would that be? You know, because if you don't know it, you can't return to it. <laughs> so you start to just work around. How does the body feel as a body? How does walking actually occur, rather than me trying to walk mindfully and impose that idea onto it. How can mindfulness be something that just is respectful, open, listening, getting the meaning of what is there, rather than imposing a meaning on it? Mm-hmm. feeling how body walks most comfortably, most steadily, most fluidly. So we're returning to nature. These are... You know, just skills to, to so you don't you know, you can't always guarantee you really know how to walk.
1: <laughs>
0: you know how to, to run, march, get from this place to another place. Yeah. So you kinda half know how to do it. But the real feeling of it, full experience of it, without the main thing being where you arrive. Walking meditation, how to sit, how to breathe. You know, things that should be child's play, and they are child's play, but we lost that—that that childlike quality. So these are, you know, just to to consider this. The role of wisdom is to continually check. Well, one of the roles of wisdom is to check these toxic influences and, you know, really, uh, and see and realize and open to what actually is here naturally. And recognizing there will be the effects of all those toxic influences. There will be struggles and turmoil and turbulence and Uneven energies and discordant experiences, because this is, these are the residues. You know. Some within that there is still the quiet voice of nature, thatness which would, in fact, pick up a little baby, you know, against all reason, whether it was efficient, effective or not. Mm. Whether it was worthwhile or going to make something, whether it was useful or not, we would do it because that's our nature. Whether it was my baby, your baby, we just pick it up. So this this innate tenderness and called the sense of sila, that which can affect our our actions, behaviors based upon mutuality, respect, loving-kindness. Can you do that to yourself? Or to how much of yourself can you do that to? Just be generous. But you can't do it to everyone, but just something, you get the feeling of it. Can you remember when that's happened to you? The difficult pieces have been heard, Graciously, compassionately, rather than criticised or fixed. You should be something else. So these are qualities. Wisdom, again, can store that. Go to that, store it. This is part of our learning. We're not just learning from books. We're learning from the book of life. And that you put a bookmark on that page, flip back to it. Read it again. Get the meaning. Yeah learn, so that you get the idea, the meaning, the skills, the results. And so every time you get a result, the wisdom gets more confident. And then you keep pruning away what what breaks that, that uh, fluency, that flow, that naturalness. One of the topics, um, the Buddha was very adept and and very generous in giving many, many skillful themes. One of these, they're not, some of them are rather bitter medicines. So One of the bitter medicines called the Vipalasa, which refers to the you know slave state, or the conditioned state. Vipalasa really means something like turned upside down, polluted, uh, topsy-turvy, um, distorted. And so there, are, there are several kinds of distortion that one should be wary of that take over the mind. And one of the distortions is this distortions of um, satisfaction or happiness. Distortion of this, uh, distortion of permanence, distortion of selfhood, and the distortion of beauty. Uh, So when one first names those things, there could be a little sense of indignation, you know, or, hey, what's wrong with happiness? Hey, what's wrong with beauty? Uh, Self means I've got to give up, you know, being somebody or. But, this isn't, but then he's saying, well, actually, this refers to where we imagine those qualities to reside. And he's saying, well, using the word happiness, kind of, it's a very fluffy word, actually. You know, it can mean a whole range of things, like love, can, freedom. I mean, you know, big, big topic. What on earth does that mean? So, with this, he's talking about ease, lack of stress. And he's saying that to to imagine this lack of stress in the conditioned state is turning it upside down. The conditioned state is always stressful. So, he's saying even as clearly there's the stress of discomfort, pain... Uh, and illness and so forth because even um, the kind of happiness one gets through owning and possessing and getting things right is stressful because it's has to be held together and maintained and it's not it doesn't support itself it tends to break down and so we might recognise this as just, just something simply like uh, just realising how painful a body can get when you don't have a chair. <laughs> a nice soft chair to just sit back in and read something, you know. Now, well, you weren't bored with a chair on your back, were you? <laughs> So, say, so innately, you know, <laughs> that condition—having a soft chair and nice cushion, and and central heating or air conditioning or warmth or whatever—that was a condition, a contingency that's not, you know, innate, not built in. Uh, so, to to uh, so, if we take so, actually, you begin to recognise just the body, its physical body. Is innately subject to stress and then when you do get a chair you feel much more grateful for it <laughs> we had the yes there's uh, most of the monasteries you don't have a lot doesn't have a lot of chairs uh, and there was one there's this incredible chair <laughs> In the Amrawadi was kind of we had a sort of nice special cha- room for elderly visiting monks. They had this amazing chair, in it. I thought they will call them lazy boys or something, where you can <laughs> the thing kicks up. And uh, so they put me in this room when I'm on retreat. And I get into, after the teaching session in the afternoon, I get in this chair like at five o'clock, <laughs> and, and everything was supported back, neck was supported, head was supported, arms were supported, feet were supported. Oh, that's and you think, oh, I don't want to get out of this thing.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <So you go laughs> to up to meditation, I have to sit upright. And I was talking to Ajahn Sameda, he said, oh yeah, they wanted to give me that chair. I said, I wouldn't have it, because if I had that chair in my room, I'd never get out. <laughs> So when you get one oh blissful. But of course the the fact is that after a little while you're sitting there you start looking a bit restless. <laughs> something to look at, something to read, something to do. So even when the conditions are okay, it's got to be advanced, hasn't it? That's called unsatisfactory. So things are not only, you know, very very contingent just upon good luck or advance or accessories, they're also, you know, innately Unsatisfactory, and that you don't arrive at a satisfactory stasis with it. You only arrive at temporary abatement, like hunger. You fend it off every day, and it comes back the next day. <laughs> of course, one can keep doing that. Great. But do, are you grateful for that? Or just think, well, we had this yesterday? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Rather than, oh, thank goodness, I've got some food. <laughs> so this is how, it, you know, this sense of things should be comfortable. Exactly what I want. is a, a, a toxin. It makes us ungrateful for what arrives. And also kind of dependent and weakened by it. So, this kind of medicine, so, you know, recognise things are conditioned phenomena, are conditioned. It means you get it sometimes, and sometimes you don't. It's conditioned. Uh, and therefore, it? therefore, it's stressful, and therefore it's not satisfactory, and therefore you probably take it for granted, when it's favourable. So, just um, kind of reflecting on this quality Dukkha. And the Buddha would only teach this, not to make you more depressed or miserable, but to say, you know, there is the unconditioned. Because there is the unconditioned, a release from the condition can be known. Otherwise he wouldn't teach Dukkha. He present it. And he only presents it because he recognizes this is the the predominant sign that most people get and are concerned about. (laughs) That saying of proofs to to truth and goodness, we express our interest, but pain we obey. So this is why it presents this sign, because naturally we're all concerned for our well-being. So you can get it, but unconditioned. Where's that? Where It's in the wise apprehension, the understanding, the sobering, and the way we can respond to conditions by chitta releasing them, releasing its hold on them. And by dwelling in that quality of release whenever it occurs to any extent. So the immediate full release is not known. But there is a partial release, someone experiences the happiness and the comfort and the ease of that whenever it pops up, and you dwell in that. And so this is giving, then you develop the wisdom and the skill to look into that rather than look at the stuff you haven't resolved yet look at the bit that you have look at, as I was saying take refuge in your sila take refuge in your kindness as those qualities arise this means then to this extent there is a liberation from ill will, malice, abusive behaviour that is a thing to rejoice in this is beautiful so the Vipalasa the, to see permanence in what is not permanent lasting. to see permanence also means reliable certain um, you know, and to imagine that in what is not reliable or certain and again this is a very big instinct we have to seek the knowable the information so thousands of books, you know, to get information, know-how, a lot of planning to make sure the future will be certain, mm. insurance policies to make sure the future is certain, uh, you know, so forth, but it's still not certain. Because you, s- you plan all that and then you plan a trip and you slip over and sprain your ankle. Fuck God. Then the flight is cancelled. Mm. So, yeah, gag, yeah, gag. Yeah. And it all set up. And even if it works, it still doesn't get one to that glowing place that one imagined it would. We arrive at somewhere else with another set of plans and things we have to organise when we get there. So the wisdom of uncertainty, which is indeed difficult to 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 attune to, because it does touch our most primary nerve. Uncertainty, very, ins- means unsafe, unimaginable, don't know where I am. But it's saying no, not quite, not quite. The conditioned world is like that, but the unconditioned is certain, is reliable, is safe. Where do you find that? Through your wise reflection and handling of the conditioned. Of the uncertain. When one no longer resists the uncertain, gets agitated by the uncertain, feverishly tries to fill in and know the uncertain, one's mind is released. And that release, as it releases, first of all, it has to, as an act of faith, just do the release and then. Being is certain. Doing is uncertain. Yeah, but what about tomorrow? Yeah, that's fine. But what about after the retreat? Yeah, but (laughs) I know. I know what you mean. (laughs) So uh, yeah. So, but but you just drop the don't know into the mind, and and actually, to be honest, to be brutally honest, you don't know. I don't know. I mean, perhaps it would be nice to know, but just do not do not know. And that's not a not very sweet medicine. But okay, well. Okay, now, pausing and just bearing in mind being is certain, purified being and then from where you are what is a beautiful thing to bring forth? <coughs> Let's bring forth some goodwill. Let's bring forth some composure and clarity. Let's bring forth from some wisdom and assessment. Maybe these will be the best things to move forward on. Qualities coming straight from the heart. Sounds mad, it is mad.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so
0: this example is the spirit of um, you know of going forth and certainly uh, in these experiences called Tudong when when one or alms rounds when one as a monk or a nun, you just go off into the for a long walk, for either a few hours or several days or months even, just your bowl and rope, you do not know. You do not know whether you've got no way of getting food, uh, and, or really guaranteeing shelter. You have to find shelter and you have to just turn up somewhere with a bowl and hope that someone sees a baby. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> See <if> you, uh, <laughs> Oh, 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 You know, gets it, and it does. But of course, you don't. One doesn't know that, so one just constantly, in such occasions, constantly meets that that sign. I don't know, I can't guarantee it might not happen. Oh no, oh God, what am I going to do? And you meet that kind of panic then you stand. Then you walk in that panic, then you compose yourself in that panic. You cannot do anything about this. You're not allowed to ask, beg, can't have any money. Yeah. What do you do? You be. And... uh so, this is say uh, an example. Um, clearly, one is attired in such a way that it does attract people, get the sign, and what's that, you know? And, and maybe some sign in which people are attracted to that. This is just an image, remember. So, I'm not saying you should all get your bowls out and wander around the streets, though it might work. you probably get some money, actually. <laughs> But it does depend, of course, even on the society that you're in. But it's surprising how this sign of of people's wish to be generous is so fundamental. Uh, And it's deeply uh, transformative when one Sees the world of others and people rushing around doing stuff and you get, read all these stories of people beating each other up, abusing each other and bombing each other and being nasty and so on. me. That's indoctrination, isn't it? And then so often if one just is where one is and courageous in that, good people turn up. The good turns up. And people love to be generous and sharing and trusting because it makes us feel good. So the sign of uncertainty is something to meet, and we meet it with something unconditioned, which is an open faith. You could say is something that's the non. It does not. cooperate with the sign of certainty and conditions. To that extent, it is unconditioned. It is not of the condition of certainty. So we may think unconditioned is some kind of way out there, cosmic, end of the universe, stuff we might arrive to, maybe five lifetimes along, or something where it's all blissed out. But I would suggest it's probably more useful to acknowledge the condition that's arising and uncondition it, go against what it's saying. This is unconditioned in a very pragmatic way. The condition that supports worry and agitation is the condition called the longing for security. Would it be possible? Would it be daring? Would it be, you know, to practice just not being certain? Unconditioning the longing for certainty. You know, we come into total vulnerability in a way, openness. Things might go wrong. They might go right. But this is the way we uncondition. stand against what the message is saying. This is, you know, a real yoga of the mind, isn't it? Twist it, turn it. The sign of selfhood. Mm-hmm. Buddha is saying, seeing selfhood is conditioned phenomena, this is a distortion. This is a delusion. This is toxic. This is topsy-turvy. One will suffer because of this. What does this mean? Does it mean I don't exist? Not really. What it means is that certain fundamental programs or dispositions or attitudes or reflexive Qualities keep assembling a self where there isn't one. The energies are there, the acquisitions are there, the reflexes are definitely there, the energies are there, the attitudes are there, but they don't assemble a coherent self. They assemble something that tries to be a self. What does this mean? Well, self means something that has control over it means something like that something that's in charge this is mine it's mine I can do what I like with it it's mine I am in control mine creates me mine creates me so the first quality of, of meanness is that's mine once we say that mine then a particular feeling occurs a particular energy starts to occur grip occurs uh, and out of that, me is, arises. These things happen very swiftly and reflexively, like a conjuring trick. You don't see it. You see the rabbit, but you don't see the gesture where that came from. So we see the mark, the mind, and we experience the self as me. How did that happen? We don't. No, we don't care because that's mine. Who I am doesn't matter right now. That's mine.
1: <laughs>
0: We're not looking at that. So, this control, ownership, authority over, and you begin to check that. Is that actually true? Is anything inherently, absolutely under your control? Body, no. Mind, no. Are those the things that are the most directly you're with? And if you're not in control of the things you're most directly, constantly with from morning to night, <laughs> what kind of control is that? You know, so, okay, so if you can't get that controlled, what control can you have over your house, your car, your kids, you know, which you're getting further and further away from? You can't even control your own body. From, you know, not getting hungry, not getting cold, not aching, not um, doing weird things, not getting sick. You can't control your mind. What control is there? And how does that feel? uh We're not trying hard enough. (laughs) No. It's just it's the wrong message. Control is not the message. What message is cooperation? That is possible. Taxing. Demanding. But you learn lots of skills in that. Cooperation. Acceptance of the limitations. Working with what's there, what arises. That's better. So. What's the other aspects and reflexes that give rise to the sense of self? Ability to do. I'm the agent. Not just me, I'm also an I. (coughs) Me, and there's also I. I arise in terms of actions. Here I am doing this, here I am doing that. Here I'm getting this done, sorting that out, making this happen, creating this. You know? so that we don't realise who this I is because we're so interested in what we're doing and creating and how it turns out you know? so again like the conjuring trick you don't see who the eye is the eye is actually cooking so the I is on fire with aims, projects busyness, so forth and it's like that and so that it seeks things to do to make happen, to meditate, to acquire, to to achieve effective results in the agent I will achieve, I can do, I am potent okay now you just check this out (laughs) so okay you can push your broom around, well done Okay, you can drive a car. Well done. To some degree, when the conditions support it. But how much agency do you have over your own body or mind? Can you make your mind behave? Can you make it let go? Can you make it cheer up? How much agency do you have over that? It's the same as control, isn't it? How many things does one set up and really feel one has the capacity to do it, to get to the end and feel you've accomplished it? In terms of things you most directly are with, your own mind, your emotions, your bodily states, by just by yourself, without any props or supports. Approximately, somewhere between Zero, (laughs) occasional lucky fluke. (laughs) Impotence. Mm. So, this quality uh, of self, the I who can do things, we believe in it because we don't look clearly, it looks that way. If you get the supports, the props, and you measure things in the right way, it looks like you did. I did get to the, to the train on time, but I wasn't able to sustain a steady, happy mind state throughout. I got restless, worried, concerned, panicky, busy, frustrated in the traffic, angry and annoyed, (laughs) which like, you know, in terms of where you really go, You are not able to to have agency over your mind states. This is not possible. What is possible is receptivity to them. That is possible. Listening to them is possible. Uh, Restraint around them is possible. Witnessing and understanding them is possible. Therefore, release is possible. Because innately, through those cultivations, we begin to get the sense of these mind states are not myself, not mine, are not worth following, resisting, fighting with. Just lift. This is unconditioned. This is sublime. This is peaceful. This is unconditioned. We're receptive. Attentive to them. Dispassionate towards them. This is cool. This is peaceful. The sign is not self. The other characteristic that gives rise to the sign of self is everything is a a unity. This is me and nothing but me. This is my territory. Is nothing else here but mine. It's all me. How much does that pertain? No immigrants in here. (laughs) In me. (laughs) No unwanted outsiders in me. It's all just 100% authentic, native-born me. How much of that is true? How much is your body inhabited by food, elements, air, water? How much of your body is built out of things that are not you? that come and go, food passes through you, water passes through you, air passes through you. You Things that you seem to be are actually the confluences of various energies and forms passing through. They're all immigrants, and, and nomadic, and shifting and changing. So, what is the appropriate response to that is inclusion. And widening to include it all. Receptive, attentive to it all, including it all. And cultivate like this, we begin to even recognize even the nasty states have to be included. Doesn't mean they have to be loved favoured and rejoiced in, but they have to be included. And this inclusion, strangely as it may seem, if the mind is held steadily on that, the internal tensions and conflicts and dissonances begin to cease, the civil war calms down, the riots and rebellions no longer break out, the fermentations and resentments fade out, things settle down. Oh! is a sense of unity but it's not self it's not a person it's not an identity it's unconditioned it's deconditioned from those qualities sign of beauty the Buddha said resist this be careful with this it's placed in the wrong place where do we see beauty? sopana sopana means something like these two uh, compounds the compound of good soup and oba which is a tense of radiance so the luminosity so happy or bright luminosity he says so be careful with this one you start to see it on objects it's a trance you see it on cars you see it on bodies you see it on design if you design things You see it with your eyes. You imagine it with your mind. Sign of the beautiful, the glowing point. You know, the glazing on the cake. You know, the carefully arranged cherry pie. You know, the wonderful advertisement that proclaims how gorgeous this thing is with special photographic effects. You know, cosmetic surgery. You will look absolutely blemish free, beautiful, gorgeous forever without a single wrinkle, crinkle, dent, crease, bent, blotch.
1: <laughs>
0: Only pay 25 grand and you will get it, you know? And so, what are we looking for? Something that can't provide it. Without an incredible amount of <laughs> tinkering and poking and wizardry. So, if you begin to just let that one pass, how you let one pass, well, there are certain ways. One, you begin to recognize that there is beauty, the beauty of loving kindness, the beauty of, of virtue and integrity, the beauty of generosity. The beauty of a settled, spacious, ungrasping mind. This is beautiful. This is rich. This is rich. This is delightful by beginning to divert one's attention to dismantle the conjuring trick instead our mind as it turns back as it turns away comes into the quality of it's difficult you know because it's very sticky magnetic stuff to pull back from that you recognise look this too will fade, break Get soiled, stained, lodged, ruined, you know, just, it will become this way, it cannot be any other way. This is tough stuff, you know. But when we do that, we just drop, what it takes to drop that, even for a moment, even as an idea, and then what's it like to be released from that grip? This is beautiful. This is unconditioning, the condition of grasping. The fear of not being, having the beautiful, or being the beautiful. We uncondition that. We come into something that's released from judgment, assessment, other people's opinions, and so forth. It's deconditioned from those appro- from needing approval. And this feels beautiful. It shines. It's luminous. This is the chitta that's luminous, the sopana chitta. So through tackling these, beginning to recognize where beauty really resides, and where it's placed, where we get indoctrinated into placing it, challenging us, seeing the fallacies of those, seeing the stress in all that, seeing the fragility of all that, seeing the pitfalls in all that, and the dazzling bondage in all that. And you so say, just break it, just let go, stop even for a minute, even for an half an hour, even on retreat, just relax that. Feel the quality of relaxing, letting it be as it is. And then there's a sense of release, that release is beautiful. It shines. The mind released is shining in its own luminosity. Not luminosity of the eyes, but a radiance of heart. This you'll never regret. This you'll never find fault with. And that radiance gives the heart package strength. Then we can cultivate from that place. Be enriched, encouraged by that. So every degree of unconditioning, every degree of challenging the conditioning, every degree of it gives an inch, gives a moment, gives a minute of unconditioning. And the unconditioning, we need to dwell in it, linger in it, feed it out, make much of it. So the mind sees the true sign and gets out of the decoy. It sees the true refuge and gets out of the false. Refuge, which is a prison. Mm. The openness is our security, our refuge, and our home. There's room for everyone in that. It's unconditioned. This is the function of wisdom to consider these things. This is why the Buddha gave us his own terms to, to work on, to contemplate, to reflect upon, to have wisdom tools to get right with. And don't believe it, but try it. You certainly will not be, will not regret it. And it may be for your deep, profound welfare and happiness.